Hello, welcome to the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition's podcast, AJCN Impress. We are here today with both Dr. Deirdre Tobias and Dr. Chris Duggan, the associate academic academic editor and the editor-in-chief of uh, the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And we are back for a second year, an annual year-end podcast where we review the top 10 papers based off of their altmetric scores. And we've got uh, quite the roundup for you today. How are you guys doing? Great, Kevin. Hi, Dee Dee. Hello. Great. Good to be here. We're actually in person, which is kind of fun. Yeah. I'm finally seeing these people for the first time. Yeah. Not over Zoom. Very exciting. You look the same, Kevin. Thank you. I think that's, <laughs> that's good. I haven't been faking it with the Zoom filters. <laughs> yeah. Catfishing us for <laughs> academic research. I cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it really threw me off there. Um, anyway, yeah, so we've got these 10 papers here, and there's a whole mix of everything from carbohydrates to red meat. The UK Biobank made uh, several special appearances in our top 10 this year. And uh, I think, but before we dive into those papers, we kind of want to talk about just the past year at AJCN and what we've seen and how we've persisted through stills pandemic times. And uh, so Dr. Duggan, is there anything you want to reflect on? Sure. Thanks, Kevin. It's been a tremendous year for the journal. We've had a uh, uh, yet another record-setting year in terms of submission. I think a lot of people have taken advantage of enforced time at the computer and have written a lot of papers and have submitted a lot of papers to our journal. So that's been very exciting. The number of journals' submissions has been uh, marked not just by their volume, but by the uh, variety of different countries that the submissions have come from. So we really continue to have a worldwide footprint, which is very exciting. We've tried to mimic our worldwide footprint, not just in terms of the papers that are submitted, but by the editorial board members and the associate editors that we have that really come from our global nutrition audience. I thought I would just highlight the editorial board members uh, and in uh, this year's podcast. Uh, they include uh, Drs. Uh, Tamid Ahmed from Bangladesh, Drs. Alexander from Evergreen, Colorado, Dr. Lydia Bazzano from New Orleans, Dr. Brian Miller is a new member from Australia, Dr. DeRoos from the UK, Dr. Elena from Israel, Dr. Golden from Boston, Dr. Harris from South Dakota, Dr. Icklisler from Nashville, Tennessee is a new member, Dr. Kratz from Seattle, Washington, Dr. Magos from Copenhagen, Dr. Mittendorfer from St. Louis. Dr. Michael Mueller is a new member from the UK. Dr. Martha, Martha Moangome from Kalifi, Kenya is new. Dr. Elizabeth Marks from Columbia, Missouri, and Dr. Usha Ramakrishna from Atlanta, Georgia. That rounds off our editorial board membership. And as you can see, it really does encompass a large number of continents and scientific interests. Uh, as you well know, Kevin, our Twitter account has exceeded uh, 4,000 followers, which is really terrific. So hats off to you. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a great year for the journal in its uh, virtual and uh, in-press memberships. Yeah, we've got a lot of Twitter fans, which is nice. Lots of uh, discussion of all of our articles. And I thank everyone who has been tagging us, especially press offices out there. Uh, it's made my job so much easier to amplify the science that we're publishing. What's your favorite part about handling the Twitter account? <laughs> Choosing who to mute and block. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I love, uh, you know, you can just type in the uh, academic.oup.com slash AJCN and see what everyone's talking about with regard to AJCN science, even if they're not tagging us and you know, we have everything from like rigorous discussion of methods to a little bit of diet warsy stuff and everything in between. So uh, it's interesting to see how our, our science is impacting things in a colloquial sense, as well as just not just the policy levels. That's awesome. Good job. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess we can we can get started with this top 10 breakdown, unless anybody has any other reflections. Very cool. Well, I think, Didi, are you kicking us off? Um, actually, Dr. Duggan is. Oh, okay, cool. Where We're going to talk about insects, right? We are going to talk about insects. So the first uh, um, paper was published in May 2021, and the title is, Insects are a viable protein source for human consumption. 
from insect protein digestion to postprandial muscle protein synthesis in vivo in humans, a double-blind randomized trial. So this was a, a really interesting trial, Kevin, uh, that I know spoke to your interest in the use of stable isotopes to measure metabolic phenomenon. Um, the question is, well, why would you study insects? Uh, so, Kevin, this is a, a study that's relevant to the debate about plant and animal-based diets because, because, of course, um, it's related to the fact that the protein content of these diets and the amino acid quality of animal source foods is generally higher than those of plant-based foods, of course. And one functional measure of nutrient adequacy is the use of stable or non-radioactive isotopes to quantify muscle protein synthesis in the setting of various protein intakes or in the setting of, say, exercise. Um, animal source uh, food foods raise the specter of sustainability and environmental impact of various protein sources. And insects are an examples of animals with a high protein and high quality amino acid content. Uh, for example, mealworm amino acid content is actually thought to be similar to milk or meat as a protein source. And that is the hypothesis that these authors took. So the approach that the authors uh, took was they recruited healthy young male volunteers between the ages of 18 and 35 years of age. And they underwent a series of detailed physiologic measurements, including body composition studies, leg press and leg extension exercises on only one side of the body, and you'll see why in a minute, as well as infusion of stable isotopes and serial measures of blood and muscle biopsies. And the the males were randomized to receive either milk or the lesser mealworms that had been raised in environments in which the proteins of their bodies or the milk was enriched with either C13 phenylalanine as well as C13 leucine. So either the milk or the mealworm were doubly uh, isotope labeled. And now you might ask, why would they select the lesser mealworm? It turns out that this uh, so-called beetle is actually uh, feeds on spilled chicken feed as well as chicken waste. So it seems to be the janitor of animal feed and animal storage throughout uh, the world. And the fact is, it's actually beetles are used by indigenous diets in many parts of the world, but it's an underappreciated source of dietary protein. But as obviously as its diet suggests, it can be raised without much of a, uh, a fuss or muss, in fact, as opposed to cows or uh, as sources of milk or meat. So these subjects received intravenous, intravenous infusions of labeled tyrosine, leucine, and phenylalanine, and they, and they underwent arterialized blood samples at multiple time points. And then they underwent exercises and blood and subsequent blood and muscle biopsies. And the muscle biopsies were both on their lateralis muscle of both their exercise legs and their non-exercise legs. And then they underwent supplementation with either the milk or the worm supplemented protein supplement with follow-up blood and muscle biopsies. So that way, the infusions pre-exercise and post-exercises could be, you could measure both total body protein synthesis as well as muscle protein synthesis. The results uh, were several. Um, number one, they looked at the serum concentrations of the amino acids over time. And although there were some subtle differences in the different concentrations of, say, essential amino acids. So some were somewhat higher in the blood concentration in the milk group versus the worm group after supplementation, but there weren't really substantial differences. The important differences were the fact that the whole body protein synthesis, as well as the whole body protein synthesis, whole body breakdown rates were higher for milk versus the worm. That was for the whole body um, isotopic rates. But the muscle protein synthesis rates were increased after exercise, but equally highly for both the milk and the worm supplemented group. So basically, the both supplementation of either milk or worm led to uh, comparable increases in muscle protein synthesis. So this was the first trial to suggest that amino acids from insects were well-observed and led to postprandial rises in amino acids that were comparable, mostly comparable to a milk-based protein supplement. And indeed, uh, the investigators concluded the following, that these data demonstrated 
that both the mealworm and the milk protein concentrate provide us with the required amino acids as precursors for de novo muscle protein synthesis, confirming that we are what we just ate, whether that is milk or mealworm. Uh, this clearly has implications for sustainability of the diet, if indeed populations can equally benefit from milk or meat or worm as their sources of high quality protein. Okay, question. A lot of <laughs> questions, actually. I mean, obviously the X factor comes up here, <laughs> but they did this in a blinded trial, so they, they did. say. They so did. it's clearly possible to be eating these beetles without actually knowing you're eating beetles yes. in some way. Yes. So this is just like a protein powder. Yeah, beetle. exactly okay. right. They lyophilized that they, they broke it down. They mixed it with water. So yeah. none of the volunteers could tell whether they were eating a dried milk product mixed with water or dried beetles. Yes. Okay. I've had a cricket protein bar. It's mm -hmm. pretty... The, uh, but it wasn't like legs and stuff sticking out. It was like no, powdered no. down. Yeah. The the chitin you couldn't really tell. Was <laughs> uh, you know, it was like pretty good. I mean, it's pretty similar. I, my undergrad is in biological anthropology, and you know, we used to watch videos of chimpanzees like using sticks to fish for beetles and things, and would eat them. So okay. it makes sense. We're getting back to our, our paleo roots. Maybe this is the paleo diet we've all been looking for. Are beetles or bugs or insects vegan? I don't believe no, so. because they're eating yeah. insects or animals, right? They're sentient. Okay. I don't know. Where do they fall in the, uh, <laughs> the classification? Okay. So, well, that's interesting. That's, um, <laughs> I see most of the commentary being um, for anti-insect as just really the X factor. But if it doesn't even play into how it's ultimately being used in the food supply then. Well, it's not just the ick factor, it's the uh, perhaps um, infectious um, pathogen factor, oh, right? Because these needles, these beetles uh, eat- Needles. These oh needles could be needles. <laughs> <Patent that. laughs> they eat chicken poop and chicken poop is high in different enteropathogens. So you want to make sure that any insect meal that you eat has uh, been highly uh, processed, yes. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm hungry. I don't know. What you guys. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, culturally, these like insects play a huge role around the world. We're being very like Definitely. Western right now. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've I've had a few of them in like traditional Asian cuisine, and I'm not. I can't even do soft shell crabs, so this is really not going to be the, <laughs> the thing for me. But uh, yeah, as a protein powder or something like that, I think it's quite it's quite good, and might be a way for. You know, within global nutrition, at least, to have a locally sourced, high-quality protein source that's not just dairy-based. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Chris, do you know, are there, cool. are there beetle allergies? Like, would this be a more hypoallergenic? Oh, I'm sure there could be. I'm sure there could be, yeah. 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 That might be an not area we need to do yeah. some more research in. Hmm. To look that up. Yeah. Anyway, well, insects, good to know. Yeah, uh, cracking yeah. the top ten. Yeah, they, they maximize MPS similar to dairy, so all the bodybuilders listening can go foraging. <laughs> Blend them up, steam them, or some way to get rid of the pathogens. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're going to skip a few and head up to the pure study next. Um, speaking of global uh, nutrition and health. Um, if you're having deja vu, it's because Pure made last year's top 10 alt metrics. So it did. And I don't believe it was meat. Dairy was it last year? I don't know. Oh, carbohydrate, saturated fat and carbs. Yeah. Fat, yeah. Um, so this is a study by Dr. Iqbal and colleagues. Um, there are a lot of investigators involved in this Pure study, which is an acronym uh, for prospective urban rural epidemiology. And this is a cohort that has um, an extensive representation globally from over 21 countries, uh, ranging from low to higher income status. And what they essentially did was this massive baseline battery of questionnaires and health status and, and continued follow-up among these participants for a number of health outcomes. Um, so this is one of many papers that they've published over the last few years now that they've seemed to acquire a good amount of follow-up. Um, this one in particular had 10 years looking at incident death and cardiovascular disease with red meat. So this obviously a very uh, hot topic over the last decade or so increasingly. Uh, so in the last few years, 
Um, but what they found was probably not too much of a surprise, similar to many of the other prior um, cohort epidemiologic analyses, where red meat um, that was in this category of unprocessed was not associated with cardiovascular disease or mortality. Um, and processed meat, on the other hand, was. So looking through this study, there are some you know, caveats, I think, to its interpretation that, that jump out at me. Um, the processed meat, even though the study included over 130,000 participants, processed meat was only captured in a small subset of those. Um, and that's because a lot of the countries that looked at the questionnaire didn't capture processed status of the meat that was being consumed. Either meat was relatively low intake in general, or processed meat was not so much consumed at all um, in those populations. So that's um, a, somewhat of a different cross-section of the populations than the other findings. And so you, comparing them directly is a little bit difficult. Um, and then also this other methodological um, comparison of meat or whatever food you have of interest with just the background diet generally um, makes it difficult to interpret meat compared to what. And especially when, when we're combining so many different cultures and countries where that background diet you're comparing meat to um, are so broadly different. And if the distribution of intake, so you have some countries that consume not a lot of meat, others that consume quite a bit of meat, um, if the distributions are different, then when you start looking at categories of red meat intake, you're also essentially looking at categories of country too. So you're comparing high versus low intake, but also, you know, all of the other differences between these countries that could be confounding the situation. So they, they did a great job carefully adjusting for a number of factors, but I do have some concerns that there might just be too much um, stratification here by, by countries with just very inherently different background diets and rates of these endpoints. Um, so the takeaway is I don't really know what where we stand on this paper alone when it comes to the hypothesis they tested. Um, but if you look way back in the supplemental data, they give some really good descriptive data for just the epi distribution of various meat sources across all the countries they looked at by country, by region, overall. Um, and I think Personally, these cohorts are, are really well suited for that sort of just descriptive between country comparison data. Um, so I, you know, I really like the efforts Pure has been putting into data collection. Um, and to me, the biggest takeaway is looking in that supplement and seeing how mm -hmm. diet differs around the world in terms of meat total and then, you know, red versus poultry versus processed. Um, so that's, that's the Pure study. Um, Didi, what about method of preparation? Does that also vary um, country to country a lot? And do they have that degree of detail in their questionnaires? No, they do not. Um, and yes, it does vary quite a bit. So, and then depending on the outcome of interest, it might be quite important for, um, for to be taken into account. So the colorectal cancer, for example, might yeah. depend very much on the method of cooking um, but you know, that, that level of detail was not available in the study. Um, so they couldn't really look beyond these broad categories of different types of meat. Um, but yeah, that, I mean that if there are trends between countries, again, if you're comparing meat intake, but also essentially contrasting different countries, then you might be also picking up some of those other differences as well. Mm. Um, and I also want to note that the U.S. is like well beyond the top category that they looked at in this analysis for average intake. So I think it's um, something like 250 grams per week was the top category across these pure studies. Um, in the U.S., it's about I think 50 grams per day. So, um, you know, we're beyond the range that this study looked at on average. Um, it's just important to put that in yeah, context when yeah. you look at these global analyses. They didn't do any within country analyses, did they? Um, I think they have within region type analyses in the supplement. Um, and I don't recall, but I feel like there probably would have been differences, again, driven by just the distribution. Some countries had relatively low intake, so they couldn't really look too far out. Yeah, these um, findings are often compared and contrasted with other cohorts, but other cohorts are typically like you know, the nurses' health study and 
health professional follow-up study or within country analyses comparing high versus low, but this is typically across country, which has exactly. opens massive doors for confounding and other factors to be at play. And I think red, right. red meat becomes a proxy variable for so many other things. So many other things globally. I think it's um, a marker of, of economic status and urban versus rural. And um, it's difficult to disentangle it from all of those other factors as well. Yeah. And hope culturally who gets access to the meat when it's limited so many things yeah and um, we know trends in in a lot of these dietary factors are changing globally and in some places quite rapidly so if you have a baseline measure 10 years ago and no follow-up data on how their diet the participants diets might have changed that could also be a limitation that you know many cohorts face because it's difficult to go back to these um, participants and recollect all of the data it's easier if you're able to kind of tap into a healthcare database and get outcomes without having to um, revisit everyone. So these, these were a single baseline assessment. Correct. Mm, yeah. Mm. Uh, the, the challenges of nutritional epidemiology. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they do well on our top 10 metrics. So. Of course. <laughs> there you go. Um, and I think they're still important to have a grasp for, again, these descriptive sort of trends are, are important um, for understanding where we are with a variety of, of uh, dietary risk factors. Um, all right, speaking of meat, Chris? Yes, yeah, speaking of meat, uh, checking in at uh, number four on our top 10 altmetric scores, we have a fascinating paper uh, by doctors uh, Desmond et al. And the title is Growth, Body Composition, and Cardiovascular and Nutritional Risk of Five to 10-Year-Old Children Consuming Vegetarian, Vegan, and Omnivore Diets. So why would one study this? This is a really fascinating topic um, in, in that there's obviously growing interest in, in plant-based and slash vegetarian diets globally. There's obviously a general association between lower cardiometabolic risks in adults vis-a-vis uh, -vis vegetarian diets, but there are much, much fewer data in children with respect to vegetarian or vegan diets and cardiometabolic risks. And as we like to say in pediatrics, children are not little adults. They have a substantially higher metabolic uh, rate, energy needs, very different body compositions. Uh, I, I will also make a, a, a quick reference to a November 2021 AJCN paper um, uh, entitled uh, Physical Activity and Fat-Free Mass During Growth um, and in Later Life by Westertrep et al., which was a really interesting large cross-sectional study of 2,000 people of all ages in which uh, body composition measured by deuterium dilution, total energy expenditure, and resting ex energy expenditure was measured. Um, so I would uh, uh, recommend that for your reading pleasure. Um, but back to this paper, uh, children, in addition to having a higher metabolic rate and a different body composition, um, are actively growing and have different needs for neurodevelopment. So there are theoretical reasons why a diet that might limit high quality proteins or other important nutrients and micronutrients uh, might be disadvantageous. So hence the interest in evaluating their nutritional and metabolic needs if they are on different restrictive diets. So the authors took the following approach. They performed a cross-sectional study among an admittedly homogeneous group of children. These were healthy uh, European Polish children ages um, five to 10 years of age. They all were described, self-described as belonging to the white race, and they were recruited uh, in a very, um, I thought, ingenious way. They used internet and social media posts on, in health food stores and um, various social media sites. So they recruited people who were vegetarians, children who were vegetarians. In other words, they ate no meat or fish in their diet or were vegans, i.e. they ate no meat, fish, eggs, or dairy. And then the children or the families were then asked to recruit a friend of the same sex or and close in the age who was an omnivore. So they had kind of built in a control who was uh, similar in age and sex and perhaps matched in terms of socioeconomic status. Uh, recruitment occurred between June of 2014 and July of 2016. And indeed, the subjects underwent a very detailed um, physiologic data collection and dietary intake data collection. The physiologic data included detailed anthropometry, body composition with deuterium dilution, bone density with DEXA scans, 
cardiovascular disease risk markers and blood micronutrient status. Uh, dietary intake occurred in a two-step process where first subjects were screened with the uh, uh, food frequency questionnaire to categorize uh, and screen out subjects and they were quantified or classified into the two to the three categories omnivores vegetarians or vegans via four consecutive um, prospective food diaries uh, the main findings were, were quite interesting they screened 256 children and ended up studying 187 studied 187 children 72 omnivores 63 vegetarians and 52 vegans so it wasn't a huge study sample size, but it was certainly one that was quite detailed and relatively homogeneous in terms of age. Um, and of note, 85% of these children had followed these diets for at least three years. So they had been on a vegetarian or vegan diet for some time. With respect to energy intake, the dietary uh, energy, the dietary um, report suggested that energy intake was comparable among the three uh, groups. Um, however, there were differences with respect to the composition of the diet in that omnivores had the highest and vegans had the lowest estimated intakes of protein, sucrose, and total saturated and monosaturated fat, uh, as well as cholesterol, vitamin B12, and vitamin D. Vegans had the highest and omnivores had the lowest intake of total carbohydrates, starch, dietary fiber, polyunsaturated fat, folate, vitamin C, magnesium, and iron. So dis distinct different, different dietary patterns between the two groups. Also of interest, B12 supplementation was used only in 44% of the vegans uh, and 35% of the vegetarians. Um, in terms of body composition and um, attained anthropometric measures, uh, compared to the omnivores, Vegans, but not vegetarians, had lower body mass index, lower fat mass index, and lower tricep skin fold and superiliac skin folds. And both vegans and vegetarians were substantially or significantly shorter than omnivores. Vegans were 0.57 height HC scores lower than omnivores, and vegetarians were 0.32 height HC scores lower. Bone mineral content was also lower in vegans and vegetarians compared to omnivores. On the other hand, cardiometabolic risks, as you might surmise, was generally lower in the vegans compared to the omnivores. So the vegans had lower total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, as well as lower CRPs. But very interestingly, if you compare the vegetarians with the omnivores, the vegetarians had higher triglycerides, higher fasting glucose, and higher VLDL cholesterols. Uh, not surprisingly, the vegans and vegetarians both had lower serum B12 concentrations compared to the omnivores when you looked at the whole cohort. But if you compared those vegans, vegetarians who took B12 supplements, those differences uh, evaporated. So what did we learn from this study? That both vegan and vegetarian diets are associated with lower nutritional status with respect to anthropometric measures, lower bone mineral content, and some important micronutrients. Deficiencies, however, the latter seem to be um, available to be protected by supplementation. And there was some evidence of better cardiometabolic health in the vegan diet, um, but long-term follow-up is really needed to follow up this very interesting cross-sectional and detailed study. So, vegetables, anyone? <laughs> Did you get your kids to eat vegetables in a little? Uh, they varied. Um, I have three kids, and I would say my daughter was the best at eating vegetables, and one of my sons was pretty terrible at it. <laughs> right now, they all eat a pretty uh, varied and healthful diet, but it's not easy. How about your kids? Um, they did great out of the gate, and then um, the last couple of years, since they disco discovered, you know, school lunches and processed foods, like that. yeah, it's harder. It's harder to go back. Um, but your kids are really tall, right? So do you think they're yes, bone they mineral intensive? I think, uh, actually, they've not undergone DEXA, but they were, all three were uh, inveterate milk drinkers. Uh, okay. So I think that was part of the issue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Anecdotal data in the Duggan family. Definitely. Right? Yeah. And I mean, it's almost as generalizable as this cohort, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, but, then, but this is what this paper, you're right, it was, you know, 187 kids, but a, a very nice study design, yeah. given what it was. Um, homogeneous data, as I mentioned, Polish white kids, but still um, very detailed physiologic measures.
Maybe yeah, the muscle just, biopsies would stabilize still confusion. No, it, but. it's an amazing phenotyping. It's just, yeah. when you hear only forty-four percent of the kids were getting B twelve. It's kind of like right, it, right. It almost there, there's definitely in the online kind of plant based community you can find lots of like almost conspiratorial thinking that oh, if you just like don't eat your food, don't wash your produce, you'll get B twelve because it comes from bacteria. And mm, there's a mm. a cadre of like influencers on like physician uh, plant-based folks who say you don't need b12 and whatnot so Mm. it makes me think about how much uh this cohort is maybe recruited from health food stores and whatnot and so Mm. a little bit more into the alternative health side of veganism rather than just like more mainstream because you look at like i think most physicians and medical practitioners would encourage folks with vegan kids to supplement or to choose fortified foods but i think yeah it's uh it's interesting nonetheless to and I think there's a lot of things we would have expected, like lower bone mineral content and a little bit shorter and things like that, but and better cardiovascular disease risk. So, you uh, tend to lurk in some pretty dark areas of nutrition, <laughs> hey, Twitter, social is... media. Don't you know? <laughs> well, I, do, I, yeah, wow. I still see patients yeah. on the side, and That's uh, true. when I would, you're plugged into it. I did my clinical training at the NIH Clinical Center, and so like everyone there is on research trials. And so you just, you've got to be up in the know of what they're reading online because Mm -hmm. those, particularly the cancer patients, they just have every supplement, everything that sort of a last ditch effort, which is very sad, but uh, you have to stay in the online space and know what the trends are. So I just came back from the airport and that's a lot like my uh, health pseudoscience ethnography there, checking out all the health stores that have all these strange (laughs) products Mm -hmm. and strange claims. In Boston? Wow, I didn't know we were so... uh... Boston and Nutrition forward. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Should we tackle UK Biobank? Yeah. Okay. So speaking of supplementation, there were three UK Biobank manuscripts from different sets of authors that reached our top 10. Um, So I'm going to kind of lump them up into one, even though they're all completely different hypotheses and analyses um, in terms of just giving the overall background. Um, But I think the one that probably made the biggest splash was this vitamin D COVID paper. Um, And it's, you know, I think when we're in the midst of a pandemic, you have to use the data available to you to make quick decisions. And, you know, I, I completely get that there are all sorts of hypotheses and ways to test them. So, you know, we did do the best we can in these scenarios. Um, But this analysis looked um, within the UK Biobank, which I'm I'm sure many of you have already heard of, is this large established cohort of over half a million in the UK um, adults enrolled, I think, 2006 to 2010. So they responded to, again, similar to Pure, a variety of questionnaires, including including diet data. Um, Many subsets gave all sorts of different biospecimen samples and did other um, anthropometric and a variety of, of different tests. Um, but it it follows the participants up through the um, healthcare system. So they were able to link these questionnaires that participants had filled out many years ago with basically real-time COVID data. And so the hypothesis here was that vitamin D um, may be protective. So higher vitamin D status or supplementation would be associated with a lower risk of COVID infection. Um, and I believe they also looked at mortality. Um, but it's difficult to really get this data real time for the exposure, right? Even though COVID might be something easily extracted from the, the healthcare databases. Um, So they have this essentially yes, no, are you taking a vitamin D supplement um, question that could have been asked as early as 2006. Um, And with this question, they found a significant inverse association with COVID infection rates. Um, The probability for just measurement error in this one question um, basically, does this question from 2006 reflect their current vitamin D status in 2020? I think is massive. So why are we observing then this, this really strong inverse association suggesting vitamin D supplementation is protective? Um, I mean, a number of reasons there. So we know that supplementation use in general 
in non-ill populations um, correlates with overall more healthful status. So um, having a healthier diet, being more physically active, seeing your clinician, attending your regular screenings, um, socioeconomic status, all of that is associated with more likelihood of um, taking supplements. And vitamin D is one of those supplements that you don't even typically have a conversation with your doctor to start taking. And many people take them just on their own um, without even having to have some sort of indication or diagnosis or concern or trajectory of poor health to begin. So vitamin D in particular, similar to multivitamins, have this strong correlation with just overall being healthier. I think that personally is probably right off the bat, the explanation for the strong inverse association. Um, but they looked past just this one question and looked at serum vitamin D, um, circulating vitamin D levels. With that, they found no association. So your actual vitamin D levels, um, not related at all to risk of infection. And then they took it one step further, trying to address potential causality and did uh, um, this instrumental variable or Mendelian randomization analysis approach, where there are these known genetic markers uh, of vitamin D metabolism. And based on someone's genotype, you can roughly predict whether they would have a higher or lower circulating vitamin D status um, from this collection of, of um, genotypes. So this score, if you know, no confounding in genetics, um, which maybe we'll dismantle that assumption a little bit in the next paper. Um, so presumably if you have a genetic score, you're not dealing with the same sort of biases that you might with this question of, do you take vitamin supplements and healthier people reporting yes? Because this is now looking at the genes, which you don't choose um, and are randomly assigned to you. Um, so with that, they also found zero association. So in this um, paper, I personally tend to conclude what the results from the biomarker and the genetics found, which was that vitamin D um, does not appear to be related at all to COVID infection in this population. Um, but we do know that there's supplementation trials ongoing, so we might have some um, more rigorous evidence to support one way or the other uh, in the near future. Actually, one in my division the VIVID trial is still, um, I believe, enrolling and um, a number of other trials globally on this topic because of the biological plausibility that has been proposed for a role for vitamin D. Um, so I think the verdict's still out, but the evidence is not compelling um, from the observational literature. So that was the UK Biobank vitamin D COVID paper. It made a lot of press. Um, and I should also mention that with doctors Ma and Chi from Tulane. Vitamin D must be the micronutrient with the highest proportion of papers that are devoted to its observational uh, associations uh, compared to its clinical trials. For sure. The one uh, massive clinical trial was also um, done in our division, same group that's now doing this uh, COVID trial, mm. looking at cardiovascular disease and um, cancer and mortality, so actual hard clinical endpoints. And that was published a few years ago, Dr. Joanne Manson's the PI, uh, called the VITAL trial, mm. um, which found a completely null association overall. But there are some interesting subgroup analyses that um, suggested that there were potential other endpoint, more relevant endpoints or modifiers from baseline characteristics. Yeah, I mean, vitamin D is one of those things where it's like you have a baseline amount in your body, you're exposed to it in the sun, you have some in the diet, and very few studies actually recruit folks based off of their initial status and try and get them to a target. We sort of just recruit a quote-unquote general population and then toss a single dose of the supplement at them and hope that shift in the distribution of status produces a signal. But I think there's a lot of, there's one individual participant data level meta-analysis for vitamin D and acute respiratory tract infections from prior mm -hmm. to the COVID mm -hmm. world. But it mm -hmm. seems like the really impaired antiviral responses from vitamin D are like at extremely deficient levels, like below 12 mm -hmm. and then supplementation looks beneficial. So it's not too surprising to me that in this more general population with higher status, you don't see much of a benefit. But as with all nutrients, it's about the dose response, but also the status response relationship and 
it's very hard to capture an epi. Yeah. And trials. <laughs> and trials. Mm-hmm. I think Just, it's not a... Anyone at NIH is listening, please fund multi-dose <laughs> supplementation <laughs> trials that have the money to screen people baseline for what their status is. Because I think we've learned that uh, recruiting random people in the Boston area and throwing a supplement at them doesn't really tell us all that much. I don't know. We're, we're pretty... Pretty far north, right? Yeah. Um, Okay, so we can then hop over to cardiovascular symptoms affect Mm. the pattern of habitual coffee consumption, also in UK Biobank. And building on this theme of using your genotype to predict what your exposure might be and using that as your exposure instead of some version of self report, um, we have a lot of. Um, tools to look at dietary exposures in a genetic way. So this this is typically this Mendelian randomization approach where if you have a known gene that controls or determines in some way your likelihood of exposure to that food or nutrient, we can use that gene to look at relationships with the outcome rather than a version of self-report because of issues with potential measurement error or bias in reporting. Um, But the big assumption there obviously is that you're eating to your genotype and there isn't kind of a um, selection against what you you genetically should be determined to eat. Um, And we know that alcohol, for example, which this Mendelian randomization approach is used a lot in, Um, you're not like born out of the womb drinking out alcohol. Like there are a lot of social determinants of your intake that that (laughs) vary over the life course. So again, your genotype, um, that might say I'm slightly more likely to break down alcohol than the person next to me might determine what my intake is. Um, that could get quite fuzzy, even for a gene. Um, coffee. how busy you are on a Saturday morning, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right. So, I mean, coffee is another one of these where there are a couple of genes that seem to be highly indicative of intake. Um, Some of these trace to coffee or caffeine metabolism. So could we use genetics in the case of coffee to look at um, the effects of coffee in a more causal approach on a variety of health outcomes? We know observationally coffee is associated similar to vitamin D, actually, with a lot of things um, in a seemingly protective way. Um, So in this paper, the authors kind of address this potential for bias. And this gets me really excited because I think we need to know more about this in terms of um, if we're going to use this tool for dietary exposures, where we have a lot of control over our exposure, unlike our hair color. Well, I guess we have a lot of control over that. (laughs) Possibly the worst example I could have. Eye color. Let's go with that. Um, Then... I'm getting you color content. Christmas. <laughs> Speaking of hair color, it's been a while. Um, so the, um, oh my gosh. My, so coffee, what do our genes have to say about our coffee intake? Um, the, you know, this, this potential for other things determining our coffee intake. And if we do this big GWAS, which is agnostically looking across the genome for signals genetically that might relate to our intake. Um, basically what these authors showed was Bottom line, high blood pressure means you change your coffee intake. So if we have genes that are found to be related to coffee intake, these might actually be entirely just related to blood pressure status. So coffee could look related to heart disease or cardiovascular disease or all-cause mortality or whatever, whatever, purely because the genes that we think are for coffee are really for high blood pressure. Um, And this, I think, is a very elegant example of why we have to verify assumptions that we make. So if we're going to use a a gene as a tool, um, as a proxy for an exposure, particularly for diet, um, I think verifying that this this gene that we found or group of genes we identified in a big GWAS among half a million adults um, is actually a gene for what we think it is. Mm. Um, Because... This confounding is clearly happening even in genetic data. Um, so yeah, it's still like I guess really upstream. It's coffee, but it's actually the really causal thing that 
is important context is very like downstream of that coffee intake like it's affecting your blood pressure and medication exactly and it still doesn't tell you about things like you know what's the terpenoid content of the coffee did you use like filters or not which are influencing blood lipids and you know caffeine is really only one part of the bioactives in coffee it doesn't tell you how it's prepared exactly um so the uk biobank asks do you drink coffee Mm. So that's what we're working with here. Um, But the the blood pressure SNPs were from a separate cohort um, used to look at in relation with the um, odds of reporting you drink coffee. This podcast is turning into like objective biomarkers won't save you, (laughs) genetic variants won't save you, just nutrition epi has got got an uphill battle. (laughs) Yeah, but I think we have to know what our tool's limitations are and this paper I really appreciate for not being afraid to look into that. Um, so the other UK biobank paper, can we move on from coffee? Yes. Um, is looking at UK biobank similar to the vitamin D and COVID, um, more of the straight up epi looking at baseline meat intake and risk of incident dementia. Um, so again, same limitations, copy and paste that we were discussing with the red meat and, um, mortality paper in pure, I think apply here. So we're dealing with, again, a baseline measure with, um, incident disease outcome. Um, I should also mention that the outcome here again is derived from the electronic health records. So if there's any sort of early onset undiagnosed or, um, you know, uh, level of dementia that has yet to interact with the healthcare system, then there would be some misclassification and outcomes there, which I think with um, a lot of mental health outcomes tends to be um, a, a big problem. Um, so here they found, again, unprocessed red meat was not associated while processed meat was associated with a higher risk of um, dementia with about a 44% higher risk in those consuming um, per each 25 grams per day of intake. Um, so no relationship with unprocessed and, um, and poultry. So, you know, when I see these kind of divergent patterns by meat intake, um, there's kind of two directions you can go. You can say, okay, well, processed red meat is related while unprocessed isn't. So is it something about processed meats that stands out? Or if we believe this to be causal, is causal factor driving this? Um, and, you know, you can point to a number of nutritional differences between processed and unprocessed. And the other is just differences in trends and confounding, right? So you have people who eat processed meat versus unprocessed are probably correlated. And we see this from the tables with a number of other factors as well. Um, so it's important to understand your population. Why, what makes processed versus unprocessed meat people different? And could those attribute to the, any sort of discrepancies we've seen between these exposures? Um, and then also, is it what we expected? If we had something to do with like animal protein, which is present in all three forms, why is one category being related and not the other? So that sort of, I guess, really deep dive into, um, understanding the data and your study population are, are important in interpreting this. Um, so that's, that's UK Biobank, um, the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> and no doubt we'll see them and Pure again next year because I think they have massive sample sizes and a lot of data. Um, and we'll, we'll see what else comes out of it. Um, all right. All right. So we're going to take a year off from UK Biobank. <laughs> Should the UK biobanking all submit to AJSAN or just avoid it because we've been doing Well, so you know, they they actually just recently uploaded all of the genetic um, data. So I think things like Mendelian randomization, a tsunami may be forthcoming. Mm. Um, and I have a comment in another journal forthcoming um, as well. Wait, addressing you're, this. Wait, you're writing for another journal? Yes, this happened. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, but... I also have coming coming for this journal, so don't worry. Good, know. good. Um, and speaking of which, speaking of take it to number one. The the number Strap one, perhaps us. perhaps all time uh, highest altmetric rating for the journal at seventeen sixty two um, is the uh, article called "The Carbohydrate Insulin Model: A Physiologic Perspective on the Obesity Pandemic." The authors are David S. Ludwig and colleagues, and 
this was a, a very interesting perspective piece, uh, essentially a narrative review published uh, in the AJCN several months ago. The uh, obesity epidemic, uh, even in the setting of the COVID pandemic, frankly, is still the number one global uh, public health problem in our world today. The rapid rise in uh, obesity prevalence and, and high income, but also middle and low middle income countries really brings to mind the question of whether our historical approach to prevent obesity and treat obesity has been effective. And uh, Ludwig and colleagues review their so-called carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, uh, previously summarized and annotated in, in several of the journal articles. And they contrast it with the so-called energy balance model, wherein obesity is considered to be related primarily to an issue uh, with energy intake that exceeds energy expenditure. In contrast, the carbohydrate insulin model proposes that the hormonal or metabolic responses to the diet, especially high glycemic load diets, uh, drives positive energy balance. And in today's podcast, I, I really didn't think it would be helpful to review the data for and against the carbohydrate insulin model per se, except to really refer listeners to the article for re reading pleasure. Uh, but just to point out that the journal uh, really seeks to be that place where scientific discourse can take place at a, at a very high level among uh, varied scientists, scientists with a, a variety of different um, viewpoints um, and uh, the, uh, implications of their debates for both clinical medicine and, and public health. And, and certainly our goal as editors is to publish pieces that are, that are well argued, that are, that are backed by strong data, um, and certainly uh, people who listen to this podcast who think they have uh, good ideas that are candidates for perspective pieces in the future um, should really be encouraged to submit their ideas, either for narrative reviews or for ideas that can be discussed in our Great Debates in Nutrition uh, ongoing series. So in closing, it's been, a, it's been a great 2021. It's been a great year for the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. I enjoyed Kevin and Dee's summaries of the top altmetric papers and wish everyone a happy new year and year to come. Yeah, 2022. I think we've already ruled it out as being the year things get better. <laughs> but we'll see. It will be. Things will get better. I've just stopped having expectations at this point. <laughs> it's fine. Well, thank you both for coming on. I love that this has become an annual thing. And uh, I'll have to, even as my time as a young career editor eventually comes to a close, whenever that is, I'll have to pop back on for this. <laughs> I think it's great that we could all be here in person. I think this was fun to, to do like Definitely. this. Look forward to next year. Yeah. yeah. Famous last words. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. all right. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. -bye.